Hello and welcome to this week's look at action and stunts on film and television. This week we look at a love story set in the middle of World War II and one that gave us quite a few spectacular action set pieces. Harrison Ford, Leslie Ann Down and Christopher Plummer star in Hanover Street. It was 1943, a time of war. In that time, an American pilot, tough enough to defy authority. I got a problem with my number one. Over, I'm coming back. Brave enough to defy death. How bad is it? Suddenly discovered a reason to live. I love you, Adler. Hanover Street, rated PG. Starts Friday at a selected theater near you. Director Peter Himes was on a roll at the box office after the success of Capricorn 1 in 1977 and was already planning a space adventure called Outland with Sean Connery, which would be released in 1981 when he was presented with a World War II love story called Hanover Street. As this film was to be filmed in the UK, a British stunt coordinator was required. Alan Stewart was selected and has had a track record of creating action on successful movies since the mid-60s. He worked on Doctor Strangelove for Stanley Kubrick, Arabesque with Gregory Peck, comedy pictures including Digby, The Biggest Dog in the World, and Carry On Matron, an action-adventure with Brannigan with John Wayne, A Bridge Too Far, and countless episodes of The Sweeney. Filmed between March and May of 1978, Alan brought in many of the best available stunt performers, focusing on those with motorcycle experience. That included Val Mazzetti, Roy Street, Jim Dowdle, and British motorcycle daredevil called Eddie Kidd. Now, more about Eddie's contribution a bit later, and particularly on Friday. But today, we look at the last action sequence in the film, Harrison Ford and Christopher Plummer are escaping German troops and they find themselves in a quarry. Now, stuntman Jim Dowdle for this sequence is doubling Christopher Plummer. In his book, Man on Fire, he describes how the following action sequence could have gone horribly wrong. He says, In this wartime romance, there's a wire and batten bridge that goes across a huge chalk quarry about 90 feet in the air. Christopher Plummer and Harrison Ford are running across it when a tank fires a shell that blows the bridge in two. Christopher Plummer is near where it breaks and clings on as part of the bridge falls away. Now that was the plan, and I was doubling Christopher Plummer. The bridge was going to break when they fired explosive bolts either side of the wire and batten structure. These were just industrial exploding bolts bought off the shelf. I was reassured it would all be fine and we could get away with it. But since I was going to be about five feet away from where they exploded, I insisted on a dry run as it was my ass that was going to be so close to this big bang. To much tutting and sighing from special effects, I asked for steel caps to be put over the bolts so they'd be contained. Special effects declined this offer. The bridge duly blew and the two halves dropped away, anchored at the ends. 
Everyone went off for lunch, except me. I walked in circles down in the quarry, searching the ground, and eventually I found what I was looking for and went and dragged the special effects guy away from his lunch. I showed him. I found one of the bolt heads about 140 yards away. Granted, it had fallen from height, but it had still fired with considerable force and at a considerable distance. We decided on the spot that they'd weld some covers over the exploding bolt heads. I've still got the bolt heads somewhere in my black museum. It's about trusting your own instincts. When you're not happy with something, even though there's huge pressure not to make a fuss and to just get on with it. But I'm sure many people can relate to that in normal life. You have to listen to your own experience because there's no replacement for experience in our business or any business. So you need to listen to what the old ones tell you, particularly the ones who've been hurt. And that includes me. Are you a Bond fan? I mean really a Bond fan. If you enjoy dreaming of what 1991 and 1993 Tim Dalton films would have looked like, or if you have a degree in Octopussy but still don't know which Fabergé egg is a fake, then the Really 007 podcast is for you. Really 007. We bring an insightful, critical and silly take on the James Bond films. We are proudly part of the Pod Dojo Network and are available for free on iTunes and Spotify. We have regular, in-depth reviews of every Bond film, as well as special episodes on different aspects of the series. And some of us are a bit down on the Craig era. Robert. While others are happy to pretend to dislike things just to get cheap laughs. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and join in on the James Bond conversation online. Really, Now, Jim explains there about realising that there's a problem and wanting to do something about it, primarily for his own safety. As he says there, he's the one that's five feet away from this. When that explosion goes off, it's going to be going off right in his face. And the chances are without those bolt covers covering them they're going to maybe blow in his direction and he doesn't want to be on the end of it so the experience is key to everything you learn from the bottom up Jim uh, of course his experience as an armorer before he got into the business so he's fully aware of uh, the way in which weapons are used how to put them together what happens when you fire them, where those shells go when they come out. All of that being explained is absolutely crucial. And what you need to do is to soak that information up. Be the sponge. It's the same in any business. If you want to take anything seriously, you take on board what's being said. Make notes. Write the thing down if you have to. Nobody's going to look at you in a strange way. Why is that guy making notes? Well, because he wants to remember what's going on. He tells a wonderful story uh, in his book about the occasion when he met Lee Marvin for the first time. And he was an armourer. And he was an armourer on Dirty Dozen. And he'd been round the other members of the cast. Uh, he'd gone to... Um, 
Charles Bronson and had said, Mr. Bronson, I'm the uh, assistant armorer here. I'm to show you how to uh, uh, use the weapon you're going to be using. And Bronson effectively said to him, I fired a weapon before, kid. Go piss off. So he left him to it. He goes to Lee Marvin and uh, Lee Marvin says, come in, kid. Ten o'clock in the morning. And Lee Marvin is sat there at his desk uh, with a half bottle of Jack Daniels and a cigar en route. And Jim introduces himself, explains what he's going to be doing. And Lee Marvin said, OK, show me. And he talked his way through the A to Z of being an actor who's never fired a weapon before. This is what you do. This is how you prepare the weapon this is how you load it this is how you cock it fire it these shells will come out when they've been when they've been fired uh and then marvin held his heart his hands out and and was given the weapon and remember he's at he's sitting at a desk and jim is standing in front of him and he's looking down his eye line is looking down at lee marvin and lee marvin continues to hold his eye while stripping the weapon completely and laying out all of its component parts on the desk he then looks down at those component parts looks back at jim and then replaces the weapon completely putting it all back together and handing it back to him uh jim then looks down and says <coughs> right well um uh, i'll go then now what he didn't realize subsequently found out was that lee marvin was in the Marine Corps during the war. He was uh, injured. He was also decorated uh, for uh, his time in the services. And then many years later, on another Dirty Dozen picture, um, was it Next Mission? Dirty Dozen Next Mission or Final Mission? One of them, where Jim is now a stuntman and went in and turned over um, a motorbike and sidecar. Marvin recognised him from that previous occasion and they became great pals and they were talking about weapons but what was interesting was that lee marvin could have stopped him at any point now bear in mind that uh, when they were doing that picture at the time jim was 18 years old he's telling a guy who's over 50 how to fire a weapon and how to use a weapon a weapon that that he had used on many occasions in his previous career as a serviceman but what lee marvin didn't do was it's okay pal i know how to use a weapon he let him explain he then realized once jim had explained this to him that this kid knows his stuff and it would be stupid of me at this point to stop him he knows his stuff he knows exactly how to use this weapon and i'm going to now show him that i know how to do it instead of saying it he explained it by putting all the component parts down and effectively putting it together blindfold, you know, because he's keeping his eye contact. That's a mark of respect. Similarly, on this picture on Hanover Street, you have a situation where the action is war-based and they're going to have to make certain changes along the way. But as we've already found out, uh, Alan Stewart, the stunt coordinator, wants people involved who are themselves either familiar around weaponry and particularly 
around motorcycles. There's a large section of this picture which is involving motorcycles, uh, motorcycle sidecars, uh, chase sequences. And therefore, you know, it's not something that you can just jump into a vehicle and drive it. A lot of these uh, vehicles that they have are possibly military vehicles used at that time and have been reconditioned for the purpose of the picture. We do touch briefly here on the introduction of Eddie Kidd. Eddie Kidd, up until this point, um, was a motorcycle daredevil. And I use that word, I have said it before, the word daredevil I hate because often what happens is that um, stuntmen are referred to as daredevils. And we have to make this very, very clear to anybody listening. There are people out there who are daredevils. What they do is they do something that you and I wouldn't do, and they do it for that moment, that thrill. There's not a great deal of science going behind this, because regardless of what happens, they're going to do it anyway. Now, for the purpose of this explanation, I'm going to use Evil Knievel as an example. We'll stay with motorcycle jumpers. We're, we're talking about Eddie Kidd, but Evil Knievel is a prime example. A prime example of an individual who is very much a daredevil. Uh, any stadium that he had been to where he was going to jump buses, trucks, cars, whatever it is. We'll use the, we'll use the Wembley, 1975 Wembley jump as a great example. It's the summer of 1975. There are 13 or 14 double-decker buses in the middle of Wembley Stadium. His approach ramp is all the way up to the very top tier of the stadium he comes down uh, makes a couple of test runs he comes down gets the gears goes through the gears gets to the point where he then splits off and goes past the buses turns around at the far end and then goes back up again now it subsequently was told many years later um, by his motorcycle engineers and by him himself that he knew that when he was at the top of that stadium, sat on the bike, ready to go, he's made his test runs, he knows full well that he is never going to make the jump. He's never going to make the distance. He's going to do the jump, but he's never going to come away unscathed. Why? Because when he comes down the ramp, he realises that this bike is shifting gear and it's not doing it correctly. It's missing a gear. The action on the gearbox, he is missing a gear. It is not at the correct speed it needs to be for takeoff. And therefore, chances are he's going to land short. Now, the landing ramp on these jumps is very important. It's often lying across the top of one of the vehicles. In this instance, if you look at the footage, you will see the landing ramp is starting on the last bus. But realistically, he wants to be beyond that point. He wants to start landing outside 
of that last vehicle. That means he's had enough speed, enough power, enough trajectory to take him the entire distance over all of those vehicles and land on the, the, the landing ramp the other side. But he knows he's sitting up there on the bike, he's revving the engine, going through his head is how much money have I taken today on the gate price? And Wembley wasn't full by any state of the imagination. There was probably 20,000 people there. But 20,000 people at £10 a go, or £5 a go, however much they were charging, is going to be the money that he's going to need for his insurance, for medical treatment, all of that has to be taken into consideration. And that's what he's thinking at the top of that ramp. He's not going through everything and thinking, right, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, and then I've got to hit the gas again at the bottom and squeeze it up and get over. He's not doing any of that. He's thinking, when I get partway down this, it's not going to be powerful enough. I am going to fall off. I hope it's not going to be that serious. So, as a daredevil, he makes a decision that regardless of what happens over the next five minutes, he is going. 20,000 people have paid to see me, and they are going to see me. Primarily, with, with a lot of these instances, what happens is that 20,000 people turn up because they want to see somebody die. That's the strange mentality about the whole situation. But he realises that they've paid money and he's going to give them a show. And if that show involves him dying, well, so be it. A daredevil and a stuntman are two different things. If a stuntman is up there and it's being filmed for a, a movie, a television, whatever it is. If that bike isn't firing correctly, he's made a couple of approaches. He's come down, he's gone past on a dry run and he knows first time second time something's definitely wrong that bike will be changed for another bike so they will stop he'll go i'm not going anywhere until we get this right you know they change the bike they fix the bike or they replace the bike and time is not an issue for knievel at this time it was an issue he starts the run, he comes down, he takes off and lands on the last bus. Now there's some terrific footage, and I say terrific, it's, a, it's an appalling fall, but it is terrific from the perspective of seeing where it went wrong. It's slow mode, so you can see him leave. He's not terribly high. He doesn't get a great deal of height over these buses. And when he lands on top of the landing ramp, which he does, but it's placed on the last bus, it bounces, the back end kicks him up, and he is launched over the front of the motorcycle. And he's got nowhere to go apart from down. Hits the floor. What's he doing? 70 miles an hour? Maybe 60 miles an hour? Maybe he'd like to be going a bit faster to get the clearance, but it's not enough. He hits the ground. He is wearing motorcycle leathers. That's it. He's got a helmet on, but he's wearing motorcycle leathers. There's nothing under that. There's no additional padding. There's no additional support to protect his hips, his elbows, his knees, those items which are likely to take a serious buffeting. So none of that is taken into consideration. 
and consequently spends a great deal of, of time in hospital and breaks his pelvis and all sorts of bits and pieces, right? So, Eddie Kidd, as we revert back to talking about Eddie, Knievel's a big inspiration. And Eddie at that time had become the English equivalent, the British equivalent, the Black Knight, as he ultimately became, was inspired by Knievel and started doing similar jumps over here and had got himself a reputation for being a real show stopper you know if eddie kid did I, I saw him live um in uh, in loughborough in leicestershire uh what would it be 80 83 84 85 maybe and was doing some remarkable things on a motorcycle um and this is why Alan Stewart decides to bring him in. There is a moment in the picture, which, which we will look at on Friday, where Eddie is brought in because there's a motorcycle jump. It's a jump that probably every other, rightly so as well, I think, every other stuntman on the job has gone, oh, no, 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 thank you. No, no, I'm, I'm okay with a bike. I can ride it. I'll lay it down, I'll fall off the damn thing. I'm not doing that. 120 feet, I think, is the distance from one side to the other for this jump, and it's a big jump. So Eddie goes ahead and does that, and we'll look at that on Friday. But it is important, I think, at this stage to look at the details of having to do that. Alan Stewart having to make a decision about bringing people in from other areas so you've got a, a really solid team of stunt professionals on this picture but not all of them are going to be capable of doing what is required in the script the script says there will be a motorcycle jump and it's not just an ordinary it's a, it's a big jump and therefore is outside of the remit of these professionals therefore bringing somebody in and it's from a safety perspective if those members of the stunt team it only takes one person to go yeah I'll have a go to suddenly start creating issues if they're not confident within themselves then there's no point and that's a good lesson for life whether you're in the business or whether you're in everyday situations. If there is something presented to you and you go, I'm not so sure. If you've had to think about that for a moment and in that heartbeat you've decided it's not for you, then it's not for you. You shouldn't then go back and go, mm, well, I think maybe I could do it. If that instinct isn't there then you've made the right decision. And along those lines, bringing in people from other areas to do the job in hand is sound advice. It's happened on this picture. It happens on other movies. The Bond pictures, for instance, good examples. Uh, Sarah Donoghue, uh, I think of off the top of my head, um, uh, driving the, uh, uh, the Sunseeker boat in the pre-title sequence, doubling the cigar girl, professional uh, boat racer. You know, she's she's a professional. Uh, there were there were girls uh, on the stunt register very capable of driving boats, but not to the same standard, and therefore that's why 
she was brought in. Many others over the years can, can be looked at as well. But I think this is a very good example of Alan being very, very calm about the whole thing and understanding that none of the stump boys want to do it. However, what we will do is we'll look outside of that. And the planets aligned at the right time because Eddie was hot at that time. He was becoming um, a serious fixture in people's lives. Um, World of Sport, which used to happen on a Saturday afternoon, would often feature Eddie live at somewhere in around the country, breaking a record, doing something out of the ordinary, you know, and giving the movie, or giving, in this instance, the movie, that little bit extra panaz. So we'll, we'll take a look at that fully on Friday. If you haven't seen Hanover Street, it is available. It's on YouTube. Um, there are, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes so at least you can have a look at the film if you wish to do so. And we'll regroup on Friday and have a look at the action. But until then, it's bye for now. <laughs>